Verdadores. A dedicated dad and long-distance parent, I'm raising two boys in two countries, and in each episode, I invite another dad to join me in a podcast adventure to talk about our journey as parents. We will discuss the messiness of modern dadding and the challenges of long-distance parenting. At the end of each episode, I will be checking in with psychologist and fellow dad Todd Kettner as he shares his insights into parenthood. My name is Blue, and I am a Dad Without Borders. Hello and welcome, and on this week with Dad Without Borders, we have Kirkland Shave. Kirkland is a longtime guide and life coach, as well as now being a granddaddy to five kids. You'd be surprised to think that he's an elder, but as a granddad, he has so much wisdom that I decided this week that there is no professional feedback debrief at the end of the conversation um, Kirkland has enough wisdom to share on his own so it's just a conversation this week and not joined by Todd or Catherine that usually join at the end of the show as professionals um, Todd as the psychologist and then Catherine who will join sometimes as well as a registered clinical counselor so this week it's just Kirkland uh, but loads of really good information and a really thoughtful conversation. So please enjoy. Kirk, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, you are a man I've known around town for some time who has a lot of experience as a dad. And now if I get it right, you've been married, separated, divorced, remarried, your dad, stepdad, you've been a co-parent, uh, and I guess a single parent to some extent as a co-parent. Um, and you're a granddad now to five, if I get that right. Is that correct? Yes. And you have how many kids? I have four sons and a stepdaughter. I'm four my, sons. I'm in my third marriage. Um, and that's not bragging. That's, <laughs> that's just life circumstances and the way I kind of frame it is I've gone through different chapters of love and different chapters of life and parenting. And yes, I've been, um, you know, a nuclear family in my first marriage that was super tight and um, really rich, beautiful, young family life. Then I went into a blended family with um, bringing in uh, in my second marriage, another son that wasn't mine, and then having another child, a fourth son with that marriage. And then in my third marriage, having um, my kids basically had mostly grown up by then, um, having a stepdaughter come into my life that I hadn't had a daughter, and that's that's been super rich. So I've had the full spectrum of single parenting, uh, blended family parenting, and um, nuclear family parenting, and co-parenting and grandparenting yeah i mean a lot of wisdom to share no doubt so i'm super excited that people can listen to this and you know take away some gems um to use in their own family life because i think for me certainly i don't know about you but for me it wasn't about reading books it was just life experience and being thrown in really without a plan second oh. time around not the case i will say second time this was a plan uh, but the first time it wasn't, it was talked about, but it, it kind of happened and we were kind of, you know, I want to say thrown under the bus to some extent, but yeah, it was kind of like in the fire for sure. Was it a plan the first time for you? Because what time did you, how old were you when you first got married? Ironically, I never thought I would ever want children, but to tell you the truth, Blue, if I were to say what was the most enriching experiences of my life it would be being a father absolutely i and would agree on both points didn't think i wanted a kid now it's the best thing that ever happened by far and it doesn't end like even now being a father of sons who are having children is still it's still being a father and it's still um 
having so much joy and shared experiences with them as they're continuing on their path of their life. My first children were twins. So um, going from not necessarily wanting kids to all of a sudden being having two kids to juggle and and it was great indoctrination at because as a father, you're, you don't get to go play. You're right in there. You're going to fetch babies and the mother's working double time breastfeeding and, and you're changing to and passing into like a conveyor belt um, parenting for a bit, logistically a little bit crazy, but it definitely, you dive in with both feet. There's no putting your toe in and going, oh, maybe I'll be a father or maybe I won't. You're in. There's two of the little buggers. So you... Do you remember when you found out it was going to be twins? Did you find out through ultrasound? Yes. Do you, yeah. Can you remember that moment? Uh, for both of us, it was like our jaws dropped to the ground and, and then kind of it sucked in and then we got super excited about it. But still, parenting was still a myth at that point. If anything, it was a rebellion to my own parental experiences from my being a child and didn't want to do what my parents did. So I still didn't know what it was to be a parent. I just knew what I didn't want to be. I didn't yeah. want to be what my dad was. I wanted to be more than that. I really wanted to participate. I didn't want to be an absentee father. I wanted to be like a full on, let's, let's go deep and, and long with this. And you know, I, I don't know about you. Did you feel this? As you're saying that, a feeling that I remember and I think this is where some of the stress came from was I felt torn in two directions because I exactly what you said. I wanted to be a different, I wanted to show up in a different way. I wanted to be more engaged, certainly from a very young age, from the baby, you know, in baby land, I wanted to be right in there. But at the same time, I also was like running around madly, building a fence, fixing the foundation, working two jobs. I was doing all that. Then I was trying to be the mum as well, but there was a mum already existing. And the, t the being torn between the two was crazy making. And yeah. I'm sure it wasn't fun to be around. I was on edge. But I was trying to be the best parent that I could be. But in the end, it was just those two things trying to come together was, and I wonder if that's the struggle for some dads now is trying to be both things. I think for men generally, we are taught to be performers and taught to strive and be the best we can be because we've been conditioned to excel in a highly competitive society. And it takes us out of our authentic self when we do that. And we, we have these programs that come up that we've got to be building the fence and cooking the dinner and changing the baby and making love to our wife and doing all of this at top notch. And, and so we overstrive and we actually come out of our true selfness and we stop noticing what our needs are. And we, we, we end up um, feeling a disconnect basically from ourselves and in that disconnect from what our needs are and not taking care of them, we can split. And I think this is what happens for a lot of young fathers is they may overstrive and then and then feel this this loss or lack in their life and then and then end up coping with it in ways that aren't as successful as they should be. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And at this time when you were young too, uh, with the first batch of kids if you like the three boys you're working as a and you still do you work in the outdoors you're a guide you were working as a park ranger back then right yes yeah we were it was a, a a delightful almost fairy tale life of living in a cabin in the park for you know four or five months of the year and the kids just running around in nature all the time and um my first wife is a naturalist so we were as a ranger she was a naturalist so the kids were just we, we just, they grew up in nature, which was magic because children stay more in the magic, mysterious kind of aspect of their being, those archetypal kind of ways of being really open to the world, the more they're immersed in nature. I really believe that. So yeah. we extended that for those kids really well. Actually for all my kids. We, yeah. Yeah, because later I ran a wilderness school when my youngest son came along and he was just on my back and we're making fire with sticks and, you know, shooting bows and arrows and tracking animals. And 
with a whole horde of kids from Nelson roaming the hills above Nelson. Yeah. yeah. You know, as you're saying that too, I, I feel like parenting is always, for anybody wondering or they're feeling trapped indoors, even if you have a small yard, there's something about being outside with the kids. Immediately, I find that they ground, you know, they've been kind of running circles around the kitchen, driving you crazy, making lots of noise. As soon as you go outside, my kids, like, they'd rather spend most of the time outside because for so, th- there's just always something new to see, animals, insects, um, you know, whatever it is, like their imagination starts to run wild. And so I always found parenting outside much easier in general. Oh way easier and then you just you just start making a mud puddle and that turns into an hour activity and it's great and, yeah yeah and, and you just let everything become visceral everybody gets dirty everybody's just letting imagination flow and the senses open up oh yeah there's and the kids energy drops yeah it does and there's a lot of freedom too when you and I get that everybody, especially now, is all about hygiene. But there's a real freedom that comes when you can really let go of your kid being mucky and dirty and just let him go with it. And sometimes oh. I can understand why it's like, oh, we don't want him to get wet. It's like, you know what? Just always take a change of clothes with you. And really then who cares? You know, like it really doesn't matter. It's just no. clothes. Well, and a fire too. Like my kids all grew up around so-called dangerous things. They grew up feeding the fire and the kids are smart. You know, a two-year-old knows that a fire hurts. So they, they'll stand the right distance and they'll throw a little pine cone into the fire and they feel connected to those primal energies. And I think it's essential. So I would definitely say to any father who's listening, even if you're in an urban place, try and get out on the weekend for a, a little bit of play in nature and it'll pay dividends for the children. And you know what I find too is those are the memories that stay with them for sure you know? like that one time it could be one time they ever got in a canoe with you they won't forget it you no. know and i'll do it multiple times but that's sometimes like if you do it too much it just becomes a blur but if even if you do those things like every now and again you do something special outside those are the memories that they'll cherish when they're older i think Absolutely. and it will help ground them into their adult life as well i think yes. you yeah. know and it'll build confidence for them when they're used to being in nature that's ever changing and never the same one day to the next. And they could get wet from rain or they could be out and their fingers get cold in the snow, but they're not going to die or anything. You know, they, they can they deal with a bit of adversity, but it, it builds a sense of trust in themselves that they're okay and they can be okay. They're, yeah. not, they're not anxious and worried about totally. something that might happen. They're build, building that resilience as a human. I think it's so important. Yes. The, um, and you mentioned the three boys. And they're quite tight, right? They get on really well. Yes. You, that was a big, do you think that, it sounds to me like the nature experience was something that really brought them together and grounded them for that. The nature experience. And then when we went through prenatal classes together with our midwives with, and we met other young um, couples that were having their first kids, we bonded with them and created a little tribe. So then we would be doing potlucks together or going into nature as a, you know, a few families together. And the kids um, had that bonding that really helped them also feel grounded so that even when our relationship fell apart and we had to go into separation, I believe that the kids were also held not only by their, that triad that was tight, but also by their friends and through the community feeling like, oh, our parents are not going to be together. That means the whole world's going to fall apart. I don't believe that they felt the world was going to fall apart. It wasn't their ideal, of course. No child wants that to happen. But they, they even saw other families that shifted out of primary um, relationship too. And it became a certain norm that they just thought, okay, well, I'm going to see my father for a week and then I'm going to stay with my mother for a week. And I see my friends doing that with his parents and, and yet we'll all get together at the beach and have a potluck together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. It's so important to have the community hold the kids as yes. much as the nuclear or the whatever, the home family. Yeah. Because actually when I was thinking about it, when, and I just had the one kid, my oldest, who's seven, who was going back and forth co-parenting. So he, we were 50-50, but it wasn't quite week to week because he was very young. But he was really comfortable. 
it was quite interesting. Like we actually saw a counselor at one point and she looked at us kind of aghast and said, you should be really proud of that fact because sure. he's, he's so, he's so adjusted to it. But I think, as you said, and I hadn't thought of that, he was really held by the community. His mum, very social. I've lived here for, you know, on and off for 20 years. I have a huge community as well. And so he and he, the funny thing is, he would know who, who he would see with me. He knew the kids, he knew the parents, and he wouldn't talk about the other community. And then when he was with mum, he adjusts and he that's who he sees. And he kind he just, yeah, I think that's, I hadn't thought about it and appreciated the community around him in the in this way anyway I, I always knew he had a big community but how much that does support them i hadn't quite thought of it in that way but it's true it, i think it's slightly tribal and i think it's natural for us to be in that state and then ultimately though i think it's up to the parents to put aside their differences if they are partying and focus primarily on making sure the child doesn't believe that it's their fault because that narcissistic perspective of life that all children have thinking that the world revolves around them also incorporates whether their parents are happy or not has to do with them so if the parents are very maturely you know doing the baton pass with the child when they're sharing and never talking the other parent down and you know all of those mature ways of being all that pressure on the child tends to drop totally and i think that's where I think that's where the therapy and the counseling and, th- and getting really, really helps a lot. Yeah. And we, and we did, you know, and maybe as a couple of the time, we could have done that sooner than later, but certainly for myself, you know, working on myself and growing really helped me support my kid in that, in that transition. And then the nesting thing too, where he was staying in the home and we would take turns in the house. Mm-hmm. We only managed it for three months. Mm-hmm. But then it just couldn't keep working. But I felt that was a good thing too. The Absolutely. Nesting of the for the kids. Yeah, I it's, think it's that stability, right? Yeah, totally. But I agree with that. How do you become that better human, that better father figure? The but like, is it just life experience, or do you lean to counselors, therapists, other men, like? What's been the best growth for you? I mean, all of it, I'm sure, but. Well, as I mean, I, I was fortunate to, to get turned on to meditation when I was 17 from a, an older hippie mentor back here in Nelson, actually in 1972. And, and, and that started opening up my mind to being present. And that helps. On the other side of the support system is, is definitely therapy. And good therapy is really important. Not somebody that you go to and you complain about your parents for five years. Um, you, you go there and you get homework and you go out into the world with your relationships and your workmates and your siblings and everybody. And you practice um, rewiring yourself from childhood patterns. And I think for men, I've been in various men's groups since my 30s. I think it's very important for men to come together as men. And um, a lot of times we're isolated. A lot of times we think we have to hold it all in. A lot of times we've been trained and conditioned into this sense of grandiosity where we've got to have all of our shit together. And if we don't and we're uncertain, we certainly don't talk about it. We can't be vulnerable. Um, We can't be unsure. We can't be... um, tender. These are all masculine traits, but we grew up believing that they're feminine traits. But somehow in our adult life, we have to come back to realizing that these are also masculine traits too. And we can be better fathers and better lovers and better co-workers and everything if, if we reclaim those aspects of ourselves. Yeah, totally. And I think it's, yeah, I do. I really think it is important to go and for, I think for anyone to go and see a counselor because we're all in relationships. We're all faulted as humans. You know, none of us are perfect. We're all just trying to figure it out and gain some wisdom as we go through. Um, and often it is through our peer group, which may not always be the best support network that we have, not always. 
Um, yeah, so I'm a big fan. And you got to find the right one as well that works for you. There has to be that, you know, natural rapport between you and your counselor. And I've had I've had great luck. Um, and it's not something I do all the time, but just every now and again, I feel like, you know, what, I need to check in. I'm feeling frustrated with work or, you know, we're having this like ongoing kind of like, I don't know argument or whatever about something and you know whether it's to learn about active listening not many people are very good at listening um i find so you know just to learn those basic skills right being able to listen and actually empathize with somebody else and again not everybody's good at that i think yeah i think it's hugely important i will say this about the men's group i can't help it i have to say this I I don't know if there's a stigma for me around men's groups. Like I love ch- chatting with other men or if it happened, you know, but the idea, I don't know why, maybe you could really sell me on men's groups here. Um, do they focus on parenting? Do they focus on like how, you know, it, yeah, sell it to me. G- give me a little bit of background. I mean, back in the 80s and 90s, when that whole movement started, it was definitely, there was some flakiness going on. And there was, you know, this, let's go out in the forest and drum and do, you know, some, you know, pseudo pagan rituals <laughs> and stuff. And I've been through that. I can tell you, I've been to that. I've been through the sweat lodge ceremonies and all, all of that kind of stuff. What I really believe works is a bit of a multi-generational or multi-age group, small group, maybe only seven men that over time, the foundation of trust grows and doing things like just even taking turns cooking a dinner and sitting around and talking about parenting or talking about our fathers or talking about our, our, the reactions that we bump into with our mates, whether we're heterosexual or homosexual, it doesn't matter. There's humanity around reactivity in any relationship. Um, there's great learning and I think it's, there's a, there's another wave of men's group and it's almost commercial. Now there's like huge organizations across North America where it's an umbrella organization that sponsors men's group and all kinds of things. I would recommend more of an organic thing with a couple of brothers that you feel close to that you can have already have a bit of a trust base and then invite somebody in that everyone feels comfortable with and see how that works and let it grow organically rather than signing up for some group of people that you don't know. It's really hard to um, have a trust foundation to work from, from there. And then, maybe that's it for me. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. And, and then I think it's, it's about the willingness to be real is really what it's about and to realize the commonality of our conditioning as men and and where our disconnect is to our authentic self from the way the culture has, um, how we've interpreted how we should be from the culture and working on how do we come back to our authentic self. And wow. that can be, you know, how do I feel in my body? What, what emotions am I noticing? What thoughts are arising? Again, it's a mindfulness practice in whatever kind of activities that your particular group might want to use to experiment with and see it as an experiment. Yeah. Yeah. I like this. So I like what you're saying about just doing in a social context, as opposed to going to somewhere where you maybe not know everybody. I'm a little of an introvert. So for me, I agree. I couldn't do that either. Yeah. Yeah. That to me is a little bit of an awkward sort of startup, but yeah, I like, because what I find is that, you know, I'll get together with friends and we might surface talk about stuff around parenting or about family life and stuff, but we don't really go into much depth. And to be honest, I'm just thinking that, that I guess this is my men's group in a way, because I'm having lots of conversations, but it's one at a time. Kind of, And I would love if, I don't know if it will happen, but if I do a barbecue and bring some of the guys that I've been talking to together, it might be fun at some point, something like that, right? Oh, I think that would be really great. Um, just to build that sense of community, because I really do enjoy talking about this stuff. And and I find that, I don't know, guys can, they'll go there a little bit, but often it's, you know, they're more interested in dropping into the skate bowl or they're, you know, you're skiing or whatever, and you get a bit of a chit chat on the way up maybe. And every now and again, a friend will really open up to you and then they'll shut up again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and a few months later, maybe that conversation 
opens up again. And yeah, I just want to do as much as I can to encourage that. So, you know, even if people listening to this are encouraged, like, oh, it's okay to talk. It's okay to feel this, this, this stuff, you know? It's important to, because it's so easy for a man to hold it all in and then be uncertain and feel groundless and, and, and not know if they're making the right decision and have concerns and worries, but to be able to talk it to other brothers. And again, I, I like to mention that in the group I'm in right now, um, there's a couple of us in our 60s and then some down into their 40s. And so some have young children and some of us are grandfathers. And so to hear from older men to say, you know what, you don't need to sweat the small stuff. You've, you've laid the foundation. You might feel like your teenage kids are like rebelling right now and they don't like you, but don't worry, they'll come around. Like there's, there's these cycles that happen through the, through the growth of the children, through the, their youth to their own adulthood, that having the wisdom of going through and watching it, if, like I said, if I was to go back and be a parent that's in my 60s, I would definitely be more chill. I'd be yeah. definitely more present and more chill. Yeah. And you know what? That's my exact experience with number two. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, I have, I'm 46. So, you know, 44 when I have Indy, who's our youngest. And yeah, it's a very different experience. Partly age and partly you've been through it once. Yes. And I talk about it with my partner who you know. Um, and yeah, it's when it's your first time, things do feel a bit more fraught. You know, when the nap time gets missed, or they don't have enough vegetables that day, you know, there's a worry that comes. You're like, hey, it's good. We're, tomorrow's another day and then nothing bad's going to happen to them overnight. So it's all good. But in the first wave, like I can't imagine having twins as your first go around. Yeah, I, I cannot imagine. Logistics, the logistics were big, but there was also a lot of delight. <clears throat> you know, you've got these two that are interacting with each other and there's no relationship that's closer. They sleep in the same crib together and right. yeah they're it's super tight and really fun to be a part of watching them become through that yeah amazing yeah it must be a trip actually um so here's a question for you because you've got the twins you said that the three boys really bonded well together yes and how much do you how much a part of that was um the outdoor experience you're a park ranger they're spending all this time outdoors in nature together and exploring which as you know watching a young child explore nature and the outdoors for the in those early years is just it's something else like it oh, I, it's the best yeah yeah the delight and the freshness of everything is so enriching for the parent or the grandparent to go oh man they're, they're just looking at this little piece of bark or whatever it is and it's like they're tripping out on it. And so you, it just takes you out of the mundaneness of life and just reignites this excitement about this, every subtle thing that's out there in nature. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, honestly, I'm a huge believer that nature is where we're at. It's our home. So they growing up in nature, they feel home anywhere. Like they could be feel home of the ocean, feel home at the top of a mountain, feel home on a trip to Costa Rica and uh, doing a zip line through the canopy or whatever. They just feel like it's home. They're sensorily awake all the time. They're super present. Um, they're calm and grounded. And I think being in nature is almost the antidote to attention deficit. Right. Yeah. You know, you put kids in schools, you make them sit for six hours and turn on fluorescent lights and they don't get to move their bodies hardly at all. It's a completely different way than we're actually genetically wired to be. You put them in nature for as much as of their life as possible and they are sensorily connected, they're grounded, they're present. It creates a, a different human being, I believe. No, I think you're absolutely right on that. And um, I, I remember because I was in outdoor education over the, you know, on and off over 20 years. And I would often when school groups, they worked with a lot of school groups and you would sometimes have a kid that was, there was that tick in the box on the form that said, you know, they had attention deficit disorder and, you know, a teacher might pull you aside and whisper, you know, you, you may watch little Johnny there 
uh, you know, because he's got this, you know, he's on the spectrum, whatever. I would never notice, never notice. We're outside, we're in nature, no concerns whatsoever, literally ever. And I work with hundreds of school kids and you'd, and it wouldn't be that much then. Maybe it's more now because I'm going back maybe 10 years or so, or probably longer as well, that maybe more being diagnosed with the ADHD and such. The difficulty for a lot of young, gener- young children now is they're so bombarded with addictive impulses through the electronics is the mind can't be still. Whereas my kids came through just before it all came down. And so they could keep their mind still easier. I think we need to invest in children with more digital detox, taking them out on the weekends, taking them out after school as much as possible into nature so that they get that break from screen time and also that dopamine drip that rewards every social ping or every email ping or every news feed or every shopping thing um, because it's they're just living in such a highly inundating and addictive culture now that it's it's there's an uphill battle for parenting i honestly believe it and for the children i want to yeah. go back a step and just for fathers um put it back on the line is another thing i learned besides kind of chilling a little bit and not sweating the small stuff is that i ended up working on the street with youth for about three years and so I, I saw a lot of youth and I was working with the men, the young men that came from foster homes and troubled situations and everything. And I realized that it, it, even though there's the attachment theory that we're supposed to make sure we've got attachment for the kids so that they can in, enable that growth for themselves. And we know there's trauma penetrating every angle of life for kids. Um, Kids are resilient. Kids will fall back to the foundational um, values that they get from the first you know, five or six years of their life. They'll stay with them. And I believe that all kids will end up in therapy one day. And they should. There is no perfect parenting. There is no perfect parent. And that all of our lives are like a pilgrimage or a journey from um, a, a, a deeply intensely developed egoic state of mind through to a more witnessing quality of mind and back to connecting to our authentic self. And this is a journey of all of us as humans. And so part of that will include meditation, part of that will include therapy. And so we need to take some of the guilt and shame off of our shoulders of thinking when we don't do it perfectly and we have a divorce or, or things get disruptive. Um, in our family situation, we have to believe that they, our children, will turn into adults, that they too will want to reparent themselves through self-exploration and healing and, and good therapy and meditation and mindfulness and all of those things too. And it's kind of the path of being a human. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've been thinking a lot now about the fact that my kids, they kind of have their own destiny. And I don't really know what that is. And it's not for me to really control. I just want to hold them and give them space, mm-hmm. be present, be a listener. I, I hope my boys grow to be the kind of kids that will share anything with me. I feel comfortable doing so. I feel like I'm the safe place. If I can be a safe place for them and they know that I have unconditional love, then I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Because I do think that they are, they're going to find their path. They have their way. As much as I might want them to both be Olympic skiers, you know, that might not be their path. And it's not for me to choose that. So I think, and I've been thinking about that a lot, about that, about like, yeah, just to trust, really. For me, it comes a lot to trust. And I have to do that when one kid goes overseas. I'm therefore detached, but yet I do a lot of work on the attachments. We've actually, we have a good a good attachment, strangely, through FaceTime and through visits and stuff that we get. But I think it's a really good point you make, is to take that weight off your shoulders. And be as much of a responsible father as possible, even when you don't have the amount of access that you want. Like, fight for your kids. Like, I believe every father needs to fight for 
equal access for their kids. And if they can't get the equal access, they've got to be super available when they do get the access and not distracted, like super present to make up for it. And because every child, girl and boy, needs a father. Yeah. They need a, a father that's present, that, like you just said, listens. And through that presence, they feel they're held. They feel the attachment. They feel safe. They feel secure. They feel loved. And that's the essence of what they need. Yeah. And I think part of that fight, too, comes to, in a positive way, comes to going to counseling. It comes to, like, you know, doing some work on yourself yeah. as much as it is about lawyers and court and mediation and those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, that's a part of it sometimes, unfortunately. You know, I think there has to be, you know, we need, you know, we need some sort of structure. I don't think it's the right structure. I'd like to see more psychologists and counselors and people like that involved in these sort of decisions because I think they do understand that. And it, whether it's a dad or a mum, whatever, whoever the main carers are in that, in that person's life, I think those relationships need to be maintained long-term. I, I'd like to give one more little tidbit from my learnings is um, I think it's really important for young, a young couple, parents, to invest in babysitters. I think it's really, really important for the, the parents to keep nurturing the primary relationship. And it's worth putting a couple of thousand dollars a year into having date nights, and maybe the odd getaway because you don't have parents around to help cover for the kids. But you got to set it up. Don't don't delay on that. Don't wait until the kids are six and nine because if you haven't kept the relationship alive for all those years and both people are just parenting, you're going to just wake up one day in the morning and look at each other as strangers. So that investment is really pays off for the kids. Nurture the relationship. That's a really good one. We try as best we can and we we have evenings and things. One kid makes life a little easier. Mm -hmm. I can imagine with more kids, it gets more tricky. And we have grandma down the road and auntie as well, which helps. So our ski dates are great and we cherish those. And we need to, and now the weather's nicer, we'll make more time. But you're right. And then at what age is your kid comfortable with the babysitter? So we have to figure that out too at our end, to be honest, because we are getting to the time now where he is old enough and he's comfortable. We have daycare too. We're, we're very lucky. We have a great daycare. He's very happy there. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It's like, or maybe the kids in daycare, as he usually would, and you just take a day off work and exactly. go and just, you know, like, why not? You're yeah. not going to look back and regret the day you took off work, are you? No. Let's be honest. No, you've got to, you've got to lubricate the original relationship that the children came from. Yeah. Now you, you say that from experience in the first time, I would imagine. With yes. Kids. I mean, I actually, in my first marriage, um, we both agreed to have a lot of, because we had the twins and everything, we agreed to have babysitters. And that just allowed us to last as long as we did. If yeah. we hadn't done that, I'm sure it wouldn't have lasted until the kids were like, you know, eight, nine and those ages. Yeah. No, it's a good reminder for people. I think now too, especially in this area, I feel like there is, and I've been there before, that attachment parenting style when you don't it's almost like a trust or a fear that if you, you know, or I'm a bad parent because I leave my right. kid away, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's being selfish. And, and, it, and it's not being selfish. It's, it's investment. 100%. So you are, you're now a father to adult kids. Mm -hmm. Like what? Like I, obviously that's a ways away for me. How different is that for you as a parent? Like, is that an easy transition into, okay, now they're big enough and ugly enough to make their own decisions and their own mistakes? Or do you find yourself giving some of the wisdom that you're sharing now? I, I learned a long time ago that kids don't really listen to what you say. They watch what you do. Yeah. They, what we do is tell speaks everything. So you know, I've made mistakes as a parent. My kids have all witnessed it and been the brunt of it. And I've talked to them about it and shared with them what I went through and why it happened and all of that so that they could understand what was behind those things that fell apart. And I 
prefer to just hold a, a, a spaciousness for them and presence. And I, I can't tell you how blessed I am to have kids that actually want to hang out with me. I play in a band with two of my kids. You're serious? Oh, no. That's Seriously, awesome. like for six years, we've played in a band together with two of their friends. And I'm the old guy playing bass and, and getting to hang with them all the time. We still all go hiking together and do missions. And yeah, my kids are open to keeping me in their life as, um, as a part of their life. And I feel really blessed. So come on, what's, what's the trick there then? Because there's going to be people listening going, well, my kids don't want to hang out with me. Like, what, what do you think you do, you've done differently to allow that? Is it the listening and the talking and being real and honest with them? Like, what is it? Partially that and partially being willing to adventure with them right from the beginning. So they're used to doing missions and adventures in nature and, and trips. And, and so they just, and then I'm still doing that in, at my age now. So they include me. You know, we'll still go cliff jumping or, you know, skiing or, or climbing or whatever it is. Um, and they'll still have me tag along, which is fantastic. Did you introduce them to things like climbing and cliff jumping? And was that, you? That, was, that was one of my greatest thrills as being a father is, you know, I started them out skiing when they're like three and four. But the, by the time they're eight, I can't keep up with them. And, you know, then they, they take wilderness um, school training and everything and they get into rock climbing and then they get me into rock climbing and you know there's there's a kind of a reciprocal thing I take them and throw them on an old busted up surfboard in Hawaii on a trip and then they end up traveling the world surfing and so it's so awesome to watch your kids take where you start them off and go like exponentially so much further yeah and I see them as parents now they're really grounded and really present with their children and delighted by their children they're they're in love with being a father and i'm getting really touched by them saying hey dad come on over and come and hang with me and gray or come and hang with me and malu and 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 i i can sense that they're excited to share their fathering with me right that's awesome yeah so so while you're giving them space to be who they are they're adults yes do you find that they come to you for advice in terms of like, oh, we can't get the baby to sleep, the, the old sleep issue that everybody has at some point as a parent? Like, do they come to you and like pick your it's, brain? It's an interesting question because I think it's more natural for them to go on YouTube and look up what, um, what eight people <laughs> say about when a child is supposed to be seven months old in their nap. Yeah. <laughs> and it call me up as as the old man and ask me about it that's funny when, that's a good point but when i'm hanging with them um they'll definitely talk about all of those things and it'll be conversational they never would want a lecture from me right but they want to share what they're going through with me and that's where i feel at my age my presence of just being there with them and hearing what's going on for them. And maybe they might ask me, what, what did I do with them when they were that age or something? It's more loose and it's um, conversational rather than instructional. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're, yeah, you're invited in for that conversation as opposed to kind of going off and knocking on the door, totally. making sure they're doing everything right. Yeah, no, I don't do that. yeah, yeah, yeah. What I'm about a, when- They're back up, I'm not their, I'm not their guide. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Safety net. There to catch yeah. if you need me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's oh, If you need me to come over, you guys want a date night, I'll come over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you do a bit of that? You take on the babysitting role? Yeah, once they're in bed, because they're still pretty little. Oh, so yeah. So if he's yeah, going yeah, to yeah. bed, the parents go out, I'll hang there. and Yeah. But as See, they now, get older, they're going to be coming here. Yeah, yeah. No, I bet they will. But here, here though, you're saying you're saying that you give them space, and I totally get that. And I, but this idea of, for example, nurture the relationship, get babysitters. I wonder. I could see that. I could see you being concerned, or any dad. I'm thinking about me too. I was like, yeah, I could give space. I can see that being my nature there. But at the same time, if I could see them not spending time to quality time together, but maybe you haven't had to because they're so grounded 
they're figuring it out naturally anyway. They mostly are. They're super smart and they're, like I said, they've got all the YouTube and um, backup they need that way too. Um, and they're also open. Like, it's not like they never ask me questions, but it's, I just don't take the role of if I see them doing something that I think they should be doing differently to interject. Cause that's, they don't want that. I didn't want that from my parents. Yeah. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, same. You want to figure it out. Don't you? You want to you do. And, and then just be there in, in as a backup and be present. And then things can come up conversationally and you might share some of your experiences through that. You're probably as a parent, more likely going to be asked for help. If you give them that space, I if you're so. that, you know, and we've experienced yeah. that not with my parents necessarily, or, anyone in particular, but, you know, we've definitely had some people, they just like to tell you, and it can be peers too, how to do things and stuff. And I think you just got to let everybody figure it out to some extent, unless someone's flailing, that's might be different. Right. Yeah. If I saw them really struggling or something, I might ask them if they would like a suggestion, but I'm not seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. What about, um, where before they're even, you know, and again, thinking about being a dad and to kids and as they're teenagers, did you find that at some point, and when was that point where they kind of wanted to bust out of home and bust out of the small town and go and see the big world? Like at what age? And, and I'm thinking it's probably a teen, teenager kind of issue that comes up. There, you mentioned it earlier, Blue. There is a culture here in the high school that by the time they get into their last year, they're already planning their their out of town missions and they posse up and they head to Indonesia or they head down to Brazil or they, you know, very few of them actually go to Europe that much. It's more like, let's go on these missions like surf trips or ski trips or things like that. And my kids, all of them traveled. And it's really great for them to get out of the bubble of the Kunis and go see the rest of the world. And it's so cool for them to go see a lot of the world and come back and go there's no place i'd rather live did they all come back and root here i forget because i think all but one all but all one that's right yeah yeah and ah, he's, interesting. He, he wants to come back but it's just circumstances with his his wife and her mother where they're helping support her and but i could see that one day he'll come back yeah yeah and as at that point when they're trying to figure out what to do in life in terms of career and education Again, do you the sit back dad, or were you there kind of giving giving some guidance? You're kind of like my dad, I think. Definitely. I'm, I mean, they know I went to university. They knew they wanted to go to university. I didn't pressure them to go. Here's an example. I, I grew up having to play the accordion in little leader hosen and a bow tie when I was, you know, six and seven years <laughs> old. Because my grandparents decided to pass an accordion on to me. And, you know, I didn't want that, but I had to do it. But as soon as I could learn, you know, in my early teens, how to play the guitar, I started playing the guitar. And then I switched to stand up bass. And my kids grew up watching me play in, in bands all their life and coming to the bands and dancing outside and big festivals and parties and everything. I never put any of them into music classes. No, eh? Not one, but they grew up in a living room full of musical instruments and going to, to jams and everything. They're all musicians now, all of them. That's awesome. They just They're found their own way. All self-taught in different ways being musicians. And even one of them went on to the music school. So I would rather be osmotic so that they absorb things and, and get a sense of what they get, get turned on to. Most of three of my kids didn't go to university until they're in their mid twenties. Not a bad thing though, because then they know what they want to do. Right. Yeah. And I didn't, I felt. And they just aced through everything. Then they just, yeah. You know, once they knew what they wanted, they were so passionate about it and away they went. Yeah. I went went too early for me for sure. But that was a little bit of expectation to be fair. Yeah. From our parents. And it's hard for them, too, because that's what they see all the other youngsters doing. I mean, maybe the UK is a little different from here, I think, in terms of the academics. And there is an expectation there. Yeah. Um, it's a bit loosey-goosey here in a way that I think works really well. 
because people find yeah we all get there at a different age right yes you know some people are ready 18 some people are ready 25 some people were never really ready but went anyway that's me right um yeah 100 percent um but again, that's that path towards our, our authentic knowingness of what's true for us. And when we're 18, we, we don't know. When we're 25, we still don't know. Like 40, we're starting to get some idea about it. It's, it's a journey. I'm figuring myself out now pretty well. But yeah, it's before now. Yeah, it is. It's a crapshoot. It just, yeah, it's a constant. Yeah, being human is just constant growth and constant learning. It, yeah. That's the way it should be. It should be one big lifelong experiment, mindfully noticing what things are working and what things aren't. And then we, we adjust. Otherwise, it's just going to be boring. Yeah. We just follow the mainstream. It's way better to, to experiment. Yeah. Try this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's the beauty of where we live, I think, like we've said. Yeah, I think so too. So how do you see the role of a modern dad? Because thinking about how you were raised, how you raised your kids and now how you see them moving forward with their families. I'm watching my sons take maternity or paternity leave for like a huge chunk of time. They, they want to do the attachment. They, they understand it and they're going to go for it. I never had that. I think modern dads, um, I do believe they need support. They need to talk to other dads and maybe some older men to get a sense of, wow, this is like intense. Where did my lover go? And, and I'm not sleeping. Like I haven't slept in a, a year and I haven't been on my mountain bike in the last three months or whatever's going on that it really can pull a young dad away and go, uh-uh, this isn't for me. I, this is way too much. This isn't what I, what I bought into. Um, and so I think it's really important for modern dads to connect with older dads and get a sense, not, fa not their fathers, but older dads and get a sense of, hey, how, do, how did you navigate this? And did your, your mate ever come back to you after uh, postpartum and want to make love again with you? Or, you know, all of the ups and downs that happened through, through that early birthing, through early parenting period that is super intense and um go to therapy absolutely yeah i think we all need it absolutely we all need it because we don't know what's in our subconscious everything from our childhood our origin is in the is the software that's in our subconscious and it's about our belief systems about um problem solving it's about relationships it's about career it's about success it's about grandiosity it's about power it's about everything and if we don't know what the program is that we absorb from our childhood we'll invert it inadvertently put it onto others whether it's our mate or our kids or co-workers um and we need to get clear about that yeah yeah no i like that um do you see your sons by the way do they are they in men's groups or do they have their social network of dads they're not they not there yet no, they're not there yet. And I'm just, they know what I do and they know what I've done and experimented with. And, you know, I think some of it they think is a bit flaky and some of it they haven't bumped into the difficulties enough yet to know that they're going to need it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The so, biggest growth I did was separating from my first wife. Oh, yeah. Like that, those, that's what's grown me. For sure. It's those crisis moments that take us to the, you know, that so-called dark night of the soul where we ask, holy moly, who am I? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? What am I, what, how do I do this better than I have been? Yeah. 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 Did you, um, I mean, you've sort of touched on this as we've been talking, but was there any, cause you mentioned Waldorf school. I wonder if there's any parenting philosophy, particularly that you have adhered to or learned about, or maybe started to adapt whether at the beginning, later on? Um, because I was a meditator before I became a father, and because I was a park ranger before I became a father, I had that nature and mindfulness aspect. And then I was into martial arts and, and those kinds of things too. So I, I, those were great tools to bring into my fathering. Um, all my kids went to 
the kindergarten at Waldorf because I really believed in kind of holding back the left brain analytical approach of our school system just a little bit as long as possible and then keeping that nature connection. But because they had such a strong nature connection, once they went through the Waldorf kindergarten, they, they wanted to read and they wanted to just jump in with both feet into that. So then they went back into the public school system and that was holding that buffer for those early years, I think stretching it out as little bit as long as possible into the- What kind of age are you talking about at this point? Um, then they when went, they're at Waldorf. Yeah, Waldorf would have been kindergarten. So like, you know, four, five, six. And so keeping the magic alive, because it's so important for young children to believe in the magic, the fairies and the, and the dragons and the, you know, they, so when they go into nature, they're looking for those things. And it keeps that, that sort of creative, intuitive, magical aspect of the mind developed as long as possible before we just start programming it left brain and analytical. Yeah, I 100% agree. Because the Waldorf is largely no screen time or very, very limited screen time and then art and drama, isn't it? And nature. And, and, and making meals, it's a lot of tactile things. So they're using their bodies. They go out into nature and do all kinds of things. But even back in the classroom for kindergarten, they're making bread, they're making soup, they're, they're sweeping and they're doing household chores. So they're learning um, all of these kind of gingerbread. Life skills. Yeah, life skills. Yeah, that's and awesome. So they, they, feel, they feel empowered with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say to anybody that's thinking about Waldorf or hasn't heard of it before and wants to look it up, I worked with some graduates from Waldorf and they graduate quite young. I'm talking 14, I think. And those were some of the nicest kids I've worked. And there we have some nice kids who are being raised in the mountains here, as you can imagine. But there was something about that band of youth that, yeah, so grounded, such lovely people, and actually very switched on with their math and very bright people. Um, I think what they didn't get taken out of them in their school system is curiosity. Yeah, yeah. So their, their desire to learn stayed with them into by the time they get into high school, into the public system. And you're right, they're the most turned on, switched on, grounded kids. Yeah, yeah. no, it's fantastic. Um, so... To sort of sum up, and we've touched on a lot of these things, but if you could kind of sum up a little piece of advice that you would have um, for an expectant father right now that anybody could really take on, just to put you on the spot here, what could you say to them? Um, that the parenting isn't just mother-centric. You know how we talked about earlier the prenatal classes and 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 of course the mother's carrying the the infant and births the infant and breastfeeds the infant and it, it is mother-centric absolutely but that the father has to invest in himself too and if it has to be outside of prenatal classes he's got to connect in finding out with curiosity okay what is going to happen in the first six months or the first year and then what do I do with my own needs and how do I manage those within this massive change that's going to happen? And where do I get support for myself within my focal point of caring for the mother and the infant um, so that the father still gets as, as many needs as possible met without being a boy, still being responsible, but doesn't feel like completely overwhelmed and blows his fuse and then checks out because I've witnessed that happen. I've witnessed that a lot of young men just kind of can't take it. And one of the, one of the things I would say about our valley is it's easy to stay a boy too long. It's in easy. this area, for sure. In this area, it's Peter Pan it's syndrome. A, yeah, it's a Peter Pan syndrome for sure. And so the, the man who's becoming a father that's a metamorphic change. And that's gonna be dismemberment of who he was as Peter Pan and to become, to standing up as a man. Standing up 
not only for responsibility for others, the family and his partner, but also standing up for what's true for himself. Because a lot of our fathers in their generations were disempowered men in the household. They didn't. That's true. Go, that is true. Yeah. They didn't stand up for their own needs and then negotiate them through, you know, nonviolent communication skills with their mate to make sure that both were navigating as best as possible, getting their needs met so that the, the relationship can hold together through these difficult times. Well, they end up in the shed, the potting shed at the end of the garden or the, in the, in the so-called man cave or the garage or wherever. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a good point. And something that I, we talked about it um, and I want to mention it now, but we talked about it before recording, I think the idea of um, taking, and this goes for anyone. This isn't just about dads or male versus female or anything. It's not about male versus female anyway. Um, but is that mindfulness piece in the morning and in the evening? We were talking about owning your day mm. because yeah. I, two weeks ago, I decided I'm not going to have the phone. And this doesn't seem like it's connected to parenting, but I feel like it is just in terms of health and wellness, but take that phone away from the bed, put a clock there instead. And so the first thing in the morning, I'm not being bombarded with other information, but I'm actually just taking some time for myself to get my head straight as to what my family needs, what I need for the day, or even just have quiet time which is usually what I do is just have some really go out in nature for 10 minutes with the dog. And then at the end of the day, doing the same thing again. And again, I'm putting my phone away. And actually now we've been turning the Wi-Fi off in the evening. So, but again, just having, yeah, just that still time because life can feel really overwhelming sometimes, especially with COVID and a pandemic too. And we're all in the household together, trying to find a room where you can escape. I tend to like hiding in the bathroom and shutting the door and, and uh, reading, the paper, reading the paper or whatever, because someone, no one can get to me there, but it's, uh, but yeah, I think it's really important to be mindful. And I was, it's interesting to hear you were meditating before you were a dad. For some reason, I thought that maybe that came later. I don't know why I make an assumption that it's a new thing, but no. yeah, great. And I think that that's something that I, I'm exploring. It's something new. I'm just, again, good old YouTube, eh? So I go to YouTube, hit meditation, whatever. And there's always this meditation guide that you can listen to. But yeah, even just to get to sleep. Uh, yeah. Nice, calm, for yeah. restful sleep, right? Yeah, there's lots of apps that are helpful. And I think you're hitting a really important point, Blue, is we, both men and women, as parents, need to resource ourselves. Because it can't just be a give, 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 give out without self-resourcing or else then we get into um, imbalance, we get into stress hormones, and then we get into uh, just coping. And that coping can lead us into coping strategies that aren't in our best interest. Yeah, beer, drinking. Drinking or, or whatever yeah. that isn't you know, fully resourcing. It's more like just coping and working with dopamine. Yeah. I've definitely been there in the past. And that's, that's where, again, going to a counselor just to shift that energy and that perspective can be really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've said it a few times and I did, you know, mutual friend of ours in town too, um, who I've talked to on the podcast before, he said to me once, we should be saying to, you know, all the men out there, we should be standing on the rooftops and screaming to go to therapy because yeah. <laughs> we're just too good. You know, we just hold it all in and then eventually that's never a good thing. Is it? So, yeah. No. And the last, last thing I want to offer to any man who might be listening is get a book called, I don't want to talk about it. And it's by a therapist named Terrence real R E A L. And it's talking about male depression the unspoken aspect of male depression because of our disconnection to our authentic masculine and how that shows up in addiction, how it shows up in rage and how it shows up in, you know, striving or performing that grandiosity aspect of making ourselves be performers to, to get attention and feel comfortable with ourselves in the world in this crazy competitive world we live in and have to work in. And we move away from our authentic self all the time we do that. Absolutely. So it's that's, a, that's a great share. Thanks for that. It's a great book for any young man to read before 
they get to midlife and have to pick up the pieces then. And it's Terence Real, and the name of the book is? I Don't Want to Talk About It. Perfect. Great. What a great note to end on. And uh, yeah, it's been fantastic talking. We could have explored so many different channels in this conversation. Um, but yeah, maybe we'll do it again sometime. But thanks so much for taking time out, Kirk. My pleasure, Blue. And invite me to that barbecue once COVID is over. Hey, yes. Let's do it. Okay, okay, awesome. Thanks, man. All the best. Thanks for putting this on. I think it's super helpful for young men, for couples, for everybody to, to put this on the table and talk about it. So thank Great. you. Yeah, thanks, man. So I've decided that every Wednesday, every two weeks on a Wednesday, there will be a conversational episode here at Dad Without Borders with another dad, including some feedback from either our psychologist, Todd Kettner, or our social clinical counselor. Did I get that right? Registered clinical counselor, uh, Catherine Williams. And it's fantastic to have them join in because it makes, it just adds something to the conversation and they have some really good takeaways and nice to have that professional um, perspective. But to try and do it every week as an independent production, it is just me, um, is quite a big undertaking. So what I've decided is to do every two weeks on a Wednesday, conversational episode, and occasionally in between, I will also be doing a solo cast, sharing my tips and tricks uh, from recent experiences, dadding uh, with a two-year-old and a seven-year-old who lives overseas, um, and reflecting on some of the conversations I've had with other dads recently. So I'm hoping to do that on a regular basis, but certainly every Wednesday, every two weeks, there will be a conversation with a different dad with that professional feedback as well. So looking forward to doing much more of that. There is now a Facebook page as well as the Instagram page. So if you enjoy the shows, then please follow and like on Facebook and Instagram. Easy to find at Dad Without Borders. And as ever, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, then please do write a review and give us a rating as well, because that really helps more people to see the podcast and inevitably builds the download numbers and encourages me to keep doing this uh, into the future. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.